Alan? I stopped dead in my tracks. I was halfway across Mrs. Curtis's backyard with a bag of mulch on my shoulder, and I'd been thinking about how I wanted to get the flower beds done by three so I could run across the county and give the landscaping estimate to the guy who called in that morning. My brother Zach had been the farthest thing from my mind. Yet I'd just heard him say my name. That was strange enough in itself, as Zach lived three states away. What was way weirder was that it hadn't been his adult voice I'd heard, but but him as a child. When I was 12, and he was about 8, during the really bad times. I pushed the thoughts away as I looked around for the source of the noise. Okay, if it hadn't been him, then who was it? Had they really said my name, or had my brain decided that so that it would fit? My name and my little brother's child voice. Frowning, I put the mulch down and slowly turned again. No one was out there with me, and the next house was a good hundred yards away. I didn't hear any radios or televisions on, and... Alan? Come here, Alan! I blinked and looked to the right. The only thing over there was the large garden shed, but the door was shut and I saw no signs of anyone there. Still, I was feeling a weird sense of unease and guilt, and it irritated me. Clenching my jaw, I strode over to the shed and wrenched the door open quickly, half expecting to catch some pranking child inside. But no, just tools and an old lawnmower that probably hadn't run since before Mr. Curtis died. Stepping back, I shut the door and looked up at the sun. Maybe I'd gotten too hot. It was just noon, but I decided to finish the yard the next day and go across the county for the estimate. The old lady might get a little pissed, but I didn't feel right and I could get things finished by lunch the next day anyway. My thoughts kept going back to Zach all afternoon, and that night I called him. Hey man, how are you doing? Uh, fine, I guess. Everything alright with you, Alan? Yeah, uh, I just... I had something happen today that got me thinking. About when we were kids... Okay. Well, and I know. Look, when Mom was with that Parker guy and he was hurting you, I should have spoken up. Especially when the cops and caseworker lady asked me about it. I didn't because I was scared. Not because I didn't care or didn't love you. I, I, I just wanted you to know that. Okay. I mean, yeah, I asked for your help, but I knew you were scared too, and uh, you were still a kid. I got through it. You were always the toughest kid I knew. He sighed. It wasn't about me being tough, it was just surviving. I told myself I was two people. The outer one that Parker saw didn't feel anything. All he did was take the bad and channel it into the hate for him. The inner part... That was the stuff I didn't want to lose or get twisted by hating him. And when he was gone, I just sent the hardened outer part away. Jesus. I'm sorry, man. I would Look, I appreciate the call, but this isn't a good time. I'll talk to you later. And then he was gone. I didn't sleep much that night, and when I got out of the Curtis house the next day, my stomach was queasy and loose feeling. Swigging some coffee, I got out of the truck and went back to work. I was working hard and fast, and only partially to be the afternoon heat. I also didn't like being out there, especially with my back to that shed. It was stupid, but Alan... I spun around on my knees. Nothing. No one but again, it sounded like it was coming from the shed. Getting to my feet, I felt my whole body tensing as I walked to the middle of the yard. 
fighting to keep my voice casual, I called out. Hello? Who's there? No response. Looking toward the house, I thought about asking Mrs. Curtis if someone else was staying here with her or might be out there, but then I remembered she'd been leaving for a doctor's appointment as I'd pulled up that morning. I doubted she was back, and I'd never had any sign of anyone else living there or being around. Alan? Help me, Alan. Fuck this. It was coming from the shed, or someone hiding around the far side. It had to be. Fists clenched. I stalked a fast circle around the shed, one way and then the other, before yanking open that door again. There was no sign of anyone inside or out. Was it a hidden speaker or something? Was this some weird, vindictive prank Zack had set up to pay me back for when we were kids? Nothing made sense, but I wasn't imagining it. I had heard a voice, and it sounded like Zack and knew my name. I'm hiding, Alan. Standing just inside the shed, the voice this time was both louder and oddly muffled. My skin began to prickle and I realized why. It was coming from underneath the shed. Looking around, I picked up a claw hammer from its pegs on the wall and stepped back outside the shed. The shed was elevated on several pillars of concrete blocks, but the clearance was less than two feet. Wishing I'd already trimmed around the shed the day before, I got down on all fours and peered through the long grass into the dark under of the building. The middle of that space was black, but I could still see enough from the sunlight at the edges to make out something large in the center. I tried to tell myself it was probably just a pile of old clippings or some junk the Curtis family had stuck under there years before, but then I saw it move. Not just move, but start slowly crawling toward me. Alan? Is that you, Alan? Gripping the hammer tightly, I wanted to get up and run, but I couldn't quite make myself. Was it fear? Guilt? It was Zack's voice, wasn't it? But how could it be? Who are you? I'm your brother. Help me. Anger, fear climbed my spine together as my face began to tingle and my hand ached at how hard I held my hammer. No, you're not. You're a liar. Stop. I... I have a hammer. It did pause for a second at that last, but then it started back toward me. It was close to the edge now and I could see more with every shuffling motion it made. Ghastly white skin stretched over small skeletal hands with ragged, dirty nails. The grime traveling up the arms highlighted how pale they were, but I hardly noticed once I saw the other marks. Bruises, purple and yellow and black, covered the forearms and only got worse as his upper arms and shoulder made their way out of them to the light. Ropey keloids wrapped around the small frame like a painful vines of crimson and violet, so thick and intricate and terrible that I couldn't look away as my gaze traveled between them before landing on the small, gray-haired head that was raising to meet my gaze. It was Zack, or something that looked much like Zack had been when he was eight or nine. But this version of him was not a child. Pale and gray, it was... Gaunt and wizened, not by time or sickness, but by pain and sadness and hate. And looking into his face, he almost seemed like a little old man at a glance. His skin was deeply lined and sallow, the topography of his cheeks defined by more scrapes and bruises. His lips split and re-split in half a dozen places, and when he spoke, I could see jagged teeth behind his nose was crooked. I'd forgotten that, but hadn't Zack had his nose busted so bad once they had to take him to the doctor? I thought so. God, I thought so. But the worst was his eyes. 
yellowed and bloodshot. They looked ancient and weary while also having the wounded confusion of someone that knows that the world hurts them more than most but doesn't yet understand why. Holding my gaze, it spoke again as it pulled itself closer. Do you know me now, brother? I was sitting back on my ankles now, openly crying as I nodded. I do. I'm so sorry. I should have... I should have stopped it. He never messed with me and I was scared if I told he would start. He bobbed his head up and down and as he did, I saw a scabby ravine that ran above his right ear. Yeah. You were always the favorite. She wouldn't let him near you. So I got your share. Sobbing, I reached out and touched his bony hand. What can I do to fix... He had lunged forward with surprising speed and strength, pulling himself onto me and biting deep into my left shoulder. Pain and terror filled my brain as I began to hit him on the back with a hammer. I heard a dry laugh coming from around the edge of his rough lips as he ground his teeth down into the meat of my shoulder. It'll take more than that. I'm tough, remember? Falling back, I started to roll, trying to throw him off, hitting him again and again when my arm and body were in a position where I could. Nothing seemed to work, and I could feel myself slipping toward a darkness as he shifted his mouth closer to my neck and bit down hard again. Uh, Fuck! Let go! Stop! Let go! I was wailing now, almost out of my mind with fear, and my arm was tiring from hitting him and fighting. Terrified I might lose the hammer, I turned it in my hand and hooked the claw between my shoulder and the thing's terrible jaws. For a moment, nothing happened, and I felt my grip slipping, but then there was a pop and he was off me, scrabbling for the bushes as I pushed myself back along the ground several feet before my arms gave out. Hands trembling, I raised the hammer in front of me like a crucifix warding off a vampire. Stay back, damn you. Stay away from me. He just stared at me for a moment. Under a chokeberry bush, blood dripping from his mouth, he began to smile. You know how long it's taken me to find you. (laughs) How many years after he sent me away. Raising a long, knobby finger, he ran it along his bloody cheek and sucked it clean. Not now, though. Now I have your number. What do you want from me? His eyes narrowed as he spat onto the ground. Want? I don't want anything from you. I just want to give you something. I stared at him, trembling. What? His face split into a toothy grin as he slid backwards into the shadows beyond the yard. (laughs) Your share. He keeps watching me. Over the past three weeks, I've seen a man standing on the sidewalk staring at me through my apartment window as soon as it gets dark. Each day, he just takes a step or two closer. But I never see him move in the moment. I'd never heard him make a noise outside, never saw him do much of anything, but watch. Until recently. Generally, your first thought in a situation like that will almost always be to simply close the curtains and ignore it. And sure, that's what I initially thought too. Block it out and move on. And even still, the feeling of knowing he's still there bothered me. It's almost like if you knew that someone was watching you sleep in a dark room. It doesn't even matter whether or not you can see them. The presence itself is unsettling. What's almost as important is that if someone is committed to stalking you, you almost have to keep an eye on them, just in case they plan on doing something awful. Or at least that'd be the hope. Unfortunately, 
My street isn't well lit, so I can never make out any precise details about the guy. Just that he seems to be a relatively average 5'10-ish and solidly built. For all I know, he could be my next-door neighbor, a co-worker, my brother. Copy and paste any face you want onto this guy, and I would have told you, yeah, that might be precisely who it is. I tried talking to the creep through my window the first few nights, but he'd never respond. So, spurred on by a bit of liquid confidence one night, I tried to physically go up to him. My surprise, as soon as I walked out the door, he was nowhere to be found. A quick search up and down the street and in the parking lot turned up nothing, but as soon as I got home, lo and behold, he's standing in the same damn spot. When I saw him the next night, I decided I was done with the games and went straight to calling the cops. Admittedly, I exaggerated details about how much of a nuisance he was to get them over more quickly. Still, what got their attention was me explaining that either they talk to him or I handle it in a very bad way. About 15 minutes later, I had an officer knocking on my door and asking for a statement. He said he tried to make contact with the man I called about, but that the parking lot was completely empty, and when he pulled in my apartment complex, he didn't see anyone walking the street. Honestly, I was baffled. For the second time, this guy pulled a Houdini and disappeared without a trace, only to reemerge as soon as I finished giving the officer my statement, standing right back in the same spot like nothing had happened. At this point, I'm in the beginning stages of thinking about the one thing that no human being ever wants to think about. I'm losing my fucking mind in the most literal sense possible. Looking back, I know I was being overly dramatic, but for a moment I genuinely believed I was at the beginning stages of some degenerative brain condition. The only thing that broke me from the descending stairs of dark thoughts was the chime of a text message from a number I didn't recognize. The text simply read, Answer it. Confused, I started to type up a response. Before I could finish a sentence, the unknown number was already calling. Typically, it's not good practice to answer calls from numbers you don't recognize, but the curiosity was too strong to ignore. When I picked up, the first thing that came through was the sound of sniffling as if whoever had called me had been crying. I asked who I was speaking with, and a man's strained, mournful voice came through the other end. Why did you pick up the phone? He said before abruptly hanging up. I called the number back, but was met with the We're sorry, this number is no longer in service automated message. I didn't know how or why, but a little voice told me this had something to do with the man outside. I checked out the window and discovered that my stalker had again vanished. Honestly, I couldn't even begin to process what was happening. My only real solace came from a bottle of whiskey and passing out to Netflix in a weak attempt to distract myself. The next thing I know, I opened my eyes to the sound of heavy breathing. I looked to the left of my bed and see a figure softly illuminated by my alarm clock. About 5'10", solidly built. I screamed for Alexa to turn on the light and instantly regretted my decision when my eyes darted to the face of the naked man before me. Disturbingly large eyes the size of tennis balls with pinpoint irises stared intently down at me. An unnaturally long frown where the corners of his mouth dropped nearly to the bottom of his neck and from each corner viscous saliva fell onto a distended pot belly. He moved like lightning. Before I could throw my sheets off to get to the door, he was already on top of me, meaty calloused hands with four pincer-like fingers quickly wrapped around my mouth and nose with incredible power. I squirmed in place, attempting to fight off my monstrous assailant, but no matter how much I fought, the man didn't budge. Ultimately, the only thing I could do was look up into the face of my would-be killer. Tears streamed down his face as he kept apologizing for his actions. I'm sorry. 
I'm so sorry. This is your fault. I'm sorry. I want to die too. I'm sorry. As the light from my world started to dim, one final look at the man above revealed irises that had now grown to fill the massive white space. In them I could see my own reflection. Most importantly, the abject terror in my own eyes and the cold reality of my own mortality. And in a blink, everything went black. When I came to, nothing was out of place. There was no sign of a break-in, and I couldn't find any visible bruising on my face. If I wasn't here the night before, I probably wouldn't have suspected a single thing out of order. Convinced that my experience had to have been a dream, I looked at my phone in hopes that maybe the weird text and call had been too. To my shock, one new text message read, You had a scary dream, didn't you? Or did that actually happen? Everything is falling apart. I nearly threw my phone when I finished that message. I don't have much money and tend to keep a pretty frugal lifestyle, but in the face of whatever I was dealing with, I decided to splurge on the best security camera available and the biggest knife I could find for good measure. That same night, with more liquid confidence in my veins, I sat and waited, watching that spot just outside my window with knife in hand. Hours went by. Nothing. The sidewalk remained empty for the first time in days. My eyes grew heavy. I tried to fight the undefeated force of sleep, but the alcohol was telling me that my sense of self-preservation would be there to protect me in the morning. As I lied to myself that I'd only rest my eyes for a moment, I had a fleeting thought that maybe I'd won a small victory. I thought I was free, for at least the time being. Reality couldn't have been further from the truth. That night I relived my nightmare and in an even more drawn-out fashion. After attempting to suffocate me, I remember he'd let me catch my breath for just a moment before going back and repeating the process. All the while, he'd still do that strange thing where he simultaneously apologize and say it's my fault. But even that wasn't enough for him. He'd mix in some personal details about my life, things I'm not proud of, things I've worked hard to forget. Pain of both would cause me to hyperventilate, and I could somehow feel the sting of my lungs burning in the dream world. I'd wake up, and it'd be the same story. Not a thing out of place. The song and dance repeated for another five goddamn days. It got to a point where I was afraid to sleep. I dreaded the notion that I'd see him and be tortured physically while being reminded of all the horrible things in my past. One night I went for a walk to clear my mind and I saw a figure walking toward me. About 5'10", solidly built. Immediately I froze in place in his presence. Flashbacks of the nightmares went off repeatedly in my mind like little bombs. My first instinct was to run, but something else stopped me from turning around and sprinting back home. Anger. Frustration. Being so damn tired all the time. The next thing I knew, I had this guy by the collar and I was shouting at him like the maniac I was. Why won't you leave me alone? I shouted. I just want to be alone. In the struggle, he got an arm free and threw a clean uppercut to my stomach that knocked the wind out of me. Staggered, he pushed me to the ground and yelled, Your ass is lucky I'll have my forty-five." before running off into the night. I sat on the ground for a moment, coming to grips with the fact that I'd just had a breakdown and assaulted someone. My mind was breaking apart, and the only twisted sense of normalcy I could hold on to when I got home was that damn man right back where he'd always been. Rock bottom was coming up fast. 
And as the volume of alcohol stacked up, the same amount of my sanity slipped away. It's interesting how you can't really understand what it's like to have your mind slip until you've actually experienced it. You think that if you focus, distract yourself enough, you can keep it together by sheer willpower. All you see is someone that's a shell of their former self. Someone that just let the things in their head go. But you don't see the continual horror film repeatedly playing in their heads. It plays so much that they genuinely believe everything in their reality reflects their broken mind and it becomes damn near impossible to separate the two. That's when you truly become lost. And it's why when I heard a knock on my door late yesterday, I thought I'd be faced with another delusion. I opened the door, bottle in hand, knife at my side, expecting to see what I saw. A man, 5'10", solidly built. In an almost joking manner, I asked him how his night was, and if he wanted some of the whiskey I'd mostly killed. Silence. I shrugged and told him if he was just going to be there to bother me, then I wasn't interested in whatever he was doing. And again, silence. With a swig from my now almost empty bottle, I went to close the door when the man unexpectedly took a step forward into the light. My eyes grew wide. My knees started to feel weak when the light hit his face. Massive eyes the size of tennis balls, an inhumanly long frown drooping down to his neck. A pot belly with streams of saliva dripping off of it, and thick, calloused hands with four pincer-like fingers. We just stared at each other for what felt like minutes before he finally spoke. I'm so sorry that we both have to be here. The stress is killing both of us. I just want to set us free. With that, he charged the door. I threw the bottle at him, hoping to gain an extra few seconds. He managed to just get his shoulder in the doorframe, and I struggled against his weight, trying to close it. I screamed for help, but to no avail. All the while, this man is telling me how much he hates me and how this is good for the both of us. I could see him trying to fit his wretched hands in to grab me, but just before he made contact, I grabbed my knife from the waist and slashed down. Yellow pus squirted from his hands and shot onto my pants. He recoiled away from the door in pain, giving me just enough time to close it. But within moments, he was back, banging on my door and shouting, Let me in! Let me in! I'll always be here until you let me in! I heard the knocking move to my window and then the walls. Even when he got tired of shouting, the knocking continued. Minutes, hours, non-stop. The only thing I could do was run to my room, bury my head in my pillow, and just wait it out until finally... Daybreak. I couldn't tell you exactly when the knocking stopped, but as soon as light filled my apartment, it was over. The level of mental exhaustion was something I'd never approached before. Fearing it was another nightmare, I went to check the security footage. Unsurprisingly, the footage was corrupted and I found that the camera had been ripped off the wall and smashed. When I opened the camera to see if I could still plug it into my computer, each port had unknown gooey substances crammed into them. The proof I may have gotten from the cameras was gone forever. However... When I checked my phone, several unread texts and calls shed some light on the previous night. My neighbor was asking who it was that kept knocking on my door. One had even gone out to see who was there and called the police but never found anyone. Furthermore, inspecting the knife from the night before revealed an undeniable streak of dried pus clinging to the blade. I don't know whether to be elated or terrified. Because as far as I was concerned, I had my confirmation. The man was absolutely real, but what the hell did he want with me? All day I was thinking of something to do. 
I don't have enough money for a hotel. I don't have the connections to up and leave for a while. And I'm not sure if either of those would even work. The best thing I could think of is communicating this story. So I've spent all day today writing it. Please. If anyone out there has experienced or heard about something similar, what am I supposed to do? I'm losing my sanity more and more every day, and as of late, some very dark and uncomfortable thoughts have crept into my head. It'll be sundown soon, and I know he'll come back to try who knows what. Please, anyone, why won't this man leave me alone? I don't have a gambling problem. That's the first thing I want known. It's also what they all say, right? No, I'm not addicted to gambling, but I have a codependency issue with someone who is. I'm not the coolest guy on the block, and I'm not particularly good at anything. Ted is, though, and we've been best friends since we were four. He's the one who always pushes forward blindly into adventures, and I guess I'm the one who always gets him back when things go sideways. There's always been an element of luck to our continued physical and financial survival, but never more than now. We'd flown to Napa Valley for a friend's wedding, and already ditched the reception party at around 11. I could hardly afford to do anything. I'd only been able to come because Ted had bought me a ticket. Because I was only there on his generosity, I followed him to the quiet and rather empty bars that sparsely dotted the area. It was a beautiful country, filled with vineyards and history, but it was not a party town. This frustrated Ted, of course, who began plying locals with drinks in order to interrogate them about local hotspots. Somebody has to be having fun in this town, he would say with a grin. One bitter old man finally spoke up at the third empty bar we invaded. There's a casino if you really need it that bad. We looked at our phones, but Google Maps showed nothing. It won't be on any map, the old man said, scowling at us. Just go south of here and you'll find it. Behind our informant, I saw an unhappy look on the bartender's face. That should have tipped me off. But Ted was already thanking the old man and heading for the door. I followed quickly, ignoring the uneasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. Driving through the rolling hills at night was a claustrophobic and confusing experience. Our phone signal dropped and we found ourselves driving purely by instinct. West... South? East? It was impossible to know for sure. We stuck to the sole road until it turned dirt underneath the wheels. That's when I almost called the whole thing. But Ted pulled up outside a graveyard and pointed. Look! Cars! And he was right. Two dozen cars were parked on the grass next to an unassuming old church that had all of its windows boarded up. He'd only caught the sight across the graveyard and through the trees because he'd been looking so intently. Triumphant, he said. That's a hidden party if I've ever seen one. And carefully drove the car between the headstones to reach the improvised parking area. I climbed out with trepidation. Even up close, the century-old church looked dilapidated, dark, and abandoned. Come on, man, This this is too much. Ted wasn't having it. He ran right up and pushed open the front door, and bright light and the sounds of electronic games burst forth. In a moment, he was gone, and I was left to step across the high grass alone. The fact that there was actually a hidden casino here lifted my spirits a little. Maybe it was all just a gimmick to encourage people to drink and gamble more. It's funny. It still sounded quiet and looked dark. 
until the moment I cracked that door open. The light and noise swallowed me, and I blinked repeatedly until my eyes and ears adjusted. I was almost disappointed to find that the expansive place within was exactly the same as any other casino. Ted had made us visit Vegas last year. Vaguely old-timey red and gold carpets ran lush under warm lighting, and drunk businessmen and their accompanying younger dates played at scattered locations throughout. An old lady glared at me, defending her slot machine, and pulled the lever only after I moved past. Finally relaxing, I shrugged. Whatever. We weren't going to be robbed or stabbed here. This was still Napa Valley, after all. In fact, they were rather accommodating. A wonderfully attractive waitress came by, said hello to me, and offered me a free drink on the house. I took it with bashful surprise. Ted was already moving about the place to scout the best games and tables. I caught up to him, drink in hand, and he settled near a roulette table. Let's just watch for a bit, he said quietly. Make sure everything's on level. Hidden in a church like this, I doubt they stick to the gaming commission codes. That made sense. We watched and listened for a bit, enjoying the taste of free drinks and the sight of pretty girls as middle-aged businessmen won and lost with varying degrees of frequency. One pepper-haired Asian suit went on a lucky streak, getting the crowd all riled up, himself included, while onlookers streaked with excitement. He bet it all. And he lost. (laughs) Seems legit, Ted told me. I'm going to head over to the blackjack tables for a minute. And he moved off to begin playing. That was everything I had, the Asian businessman said, dismayed. The two girls that had been clinging to his arms disengaged and began to look disinterested. Hurriedly, he made a motion to a casino manager, and the well-dressed but subtly subservient facilitator brought him a small suitcase. It clicked open with a rush of air, and I watched as the unlucky gambler pulled out a bundle stacked of blue-dollar bills. That was odd. They were... American dollars. Same faces, designs, and everything. Just dark blue instead of green. Was this fake money? Some sort of in-house system? Come to think of it, I saw no chips, just money. If these were the replacement for Chip, why did they care to make them similar to real dollars? The gambler in question did not have the same qualms. He gladly placed the stacks on the table. The crowd grew energized again, and the girls began showing him attention once more. Feeling a little strange, I moved off, seeking Ted. I found him at the blackjack table, as he'd won a hand. Grinning, he pumped a fist. I like this. Come on, play. I don't have any money for this, I told him sheepishly. Here's some. He handed me a $100 bill. I took it and sat, but secretly stashed the 100 and pulled out the last of my own cash reserves from my wallet. As I always did, I would return his money back to him when he wasn't looking. It never made me feel bad about it, and he had a high-paying job besides, but... I just couldn't stomach leeching off someone else like that. We played a few hands, and while still enjoying free drinks, I drank slower to remain sober-ish, but Ted guzzled away, having the time of his life. He lost quite a few hands, but played well, and actually started accumulating more money than he'd come in with. I, in contrast, lost all of my meager cash rather quickly. Upon the loss of my last dollar, a suited man with slicked back hair and a politician's grin approached and leaned down between us, an arm on the back edge of each of our chairs. He spoke with a thick Middle Eastern accent, although his skin was pale enough that I was uncertain what region he was from. Gentlemen, welcome. I don't think I've seen your grace in our establishment before. I'm Malcolm. Nice to meet you, Ted said. This place is great. Love the free drinks. 
Yes, Malcolm said with a widening grin. A small expense in the face of a casino's profits. I'm not a greedy man. So, you're the owner? I asked, not wanting to be left out. Yes, but think of me as your friend. He finally moved back and stood upright. His gaze shifted to me. I see you're out of money. Would you like to keep playing? He motioned to manager and a briefcase was open before me, complete with the stacks of blue dollar bills I'd seen before. I glanced over awkwardly. Ted was suspicious, but open to the idea. What are these? They represent debt, Malcolm said graciously. Interesting. Ted looked to me. You should do it, Ryan. But that was not my name. I think I'm alright, Jason, I replied. What did he have in mind? I imagine he was planning to use these blue dollar bills if needed and then slip out. But they could make us pay back a debt if they had no idea who we were. Accepting my refusal, Malcolm ordered the suitcase closed and withdrew. Good luck, gentlemen. I was left with a chill and a shiver. From then on, I could only sit and watch as Ted gambled, talked up girls, and had a good time. The free drinks were no longer offered to me, and indeed, none of the patrons or employees would so much as look at me. I should have noticed, but again, my life was often lonely. I simply accepted it. We moved from game to game, eventually ending up back at roulette, and Ted soon found himself in a situation we had witnessed earlier. Energized crowd, a streak of lucky wins, and a potential for huge payoff. Despite my whispered warnings, he bet everything he had. The ball bounced, the numbers were called, and I sighed. He'd lost. Malcolm returned with a grin, and I imagined to be rather hungry, and the suitcase was offered to Ted. Someone in the crowd squeezed my forearm in warning, but by the time I looked, it was impossible to tell who had done it. Don't. Let's go home. Come on, Ryan, he shouted back. I could tell he still intended to rip off the establishment. Let's have some fun. Reaching down, he eagerly pulled out two armfuls of blue dollar stacks, most of which he pawned off me. I held them as he bent blue money on another roll. It might have been my imagination, but the stacks felt subtly warm. He won thankfully, but that quickly led to more bets, and I watched with a sinking feeling as my load of blue dollar shrank. The eyes of the crowd were upon us very intently now, and Malcolm seemed to be staring solely at Ted, grinning only when Ted looked his way. We should go, I said again, but Ted ignored me. There were a hundred opportunities to leave, but Ted took none of them. At long last, his final blue dollar bill went to the house. At that point, he whispered his intent to me, and I took off running after him in a heartbeat later. I made it to the door and burst into the cool night air, but Ted remained just within. What are you doing? I shouted to him. Get out here! He seemed horrified. He stared down at his feet as they towed the red and gold carpet's edge. I, I can't! I can't leave! Malcolm approached, calmly behind Ted, flanked by two suited managers. Sensing something was wrong, I leapt forward and kept the church door from closing, but I made sure to remain just outside. Malcolm, what the hell is this? The grinning man gave a small laugh. I told you that my money was a form of debt. People like your friend here never listen. They think that they can cheat the house. Perhaps that would be possible if the house, in this case, was not a demon. But it is. I am. And he's now indebted. I stared up at him, trembling, but it seemed that I was not in direct danger. The next question was obvious. What does he owe? The same thing that is always owed, Malcolm told me. 
His grin widened along his cheeks in a starkly inhuman manner. Each blue dollar represented a portion of his soul. If even one remained, there was a chance he might win it all back, and more thus, I would not technically own him. With not even one blue dollar left, he has no chance of escape. He is mine. Looking past him, I saw the patrons and employees watching us. I understood they were all his. The Asian businessman I'd seen gambling had been one of us, free but no longer. I looked back to Malcolm, thinking about his explanation of chance. So you operate by the rules, then? Of course. I am a demon, rule-bound by nature. This type of thing must be enacted fairly. Ted still struggled with the invisible threshold, his eyes on me, his expression desperate. How do I get him out? My pulse was racing. If the roles had been reversed, I was sure Ted would have a plan, but I had no idea what to do. Malcolm laughed softly for a full five seconds before answering. There's nothing you can do except leave. To buy back even a single blue bill, he must have money. He has no money, therefore he cannot buy back the single blue bill required. Believe me when I tell you, this is not my establishment... How do you Americans say? First rodeo. Ted began screaming, but a gesture from Malcolm silenced him. Ted continued moving and opening his mouth, certainly, but no noise came out. Heart thudding in my chest hard, I feared I might pass out. I reached in my back pocket and slipped out one hundred dollar bill. How many of his blue dollars will this get me? It must be his money, not yours, Malcolm replied, his expression uncertain for the first time since I'd seen him. It is his, I shouted. He gave it to me to hold. A manager whispered in Malcolm's ear and a frustrated sigh followed. At current exchange rates, that $100 bill will purchase 21 of his blue bills. The other manager opened the suitcase, showing 21 loose bills, and I scooped them up before dropping the hundred in their place. Without warning, Ted's screams became audible again, and he fell forward into the graveyard with me. Grabbing him by instinct, I kept him from falling completely down, and Malcolm stood staring at us with anger. Now that his careful veneer was fading, I could see his ghastly undertones in his skin and the pale outlines of numerous gnarled horns on his head and on the head of the managers beside him. Ted accepted the 21 blue dollars from me and stood, slowly recovering his wits and breath. Jesus, they had me. He gripped my shoulder. You got me out. You got me out. You always do. Thank you. Thank you. I nodded and began backing away from that unhallowed place. There was no way we could have known. Care to make another wager? The demon at the church door asked. Now that you know what we are, there are greater winnings available. Care to make another wager? The demon at the church door asked. Now that you know what we are, there are greater winnings available. How would you care for immortality? Perhaps the power of flight or precognition? We can gift you these things, assuming you win enough. Ted stopped following me and turned back to look back at Malcolm's charred face. A terrible, sinking feeling overcame me. Don't. Imagine how much we could do if we could see the future, Tad said, still frozen in place. We would be set for life. He's lying, I shouted. I cannot lie, Malcolm replied with amusement. You know this. I'll just bet 20, Ted called back. I still have the one, so I'll be set free. I kept screaming, but Ted staggered toward that open door and pushed within. Fully gruesome now, Malcolm gave me a maggot-filled smile, and the door shut on its own accord. Opening and closing the rotted wood a few times, I discovered nothing but a musty and abandoned church within. I could 
also now see that the cars parked outside were rusted and ancient, with models ranging from modern to classic. Those that had come here over the last fifty years and never left. Surely I wasn't the first to turn down the blue soul money. How'd I never heard of... The old man at the bar. His bitterness. He'd lost someone there, to this place, to Malcolm, and Ted had been an obviously doomed soul from the start. Telling him it simply sped up the inevitable. I began the long walk home. I was alone now, but that was no longer my biggest fear. I'd done my part. I pulled a lucky last-minute move and saved Ted from a demon uniquely suited to his flaws, but he'd chosen to go back anyway. There was nothing I could do but go on alone and wonder when my own particular brand of demon would fall across my path. On that day, I too would be lost. Thus was born Malcolm's demonic confidence. Even with his friends to offer one last chance at escape. We're all human. We are each our own doom. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. I know I did. I think my personal favorite would be the first one, followed by the second and the third one. They were all really, really well-written and really awesome stories. But I think the first one was just a little more eerie than the other two, personally for me anyway. Let me know which one was your favorite in the comment section below. And let me know what other type of stories you'd like to hear. Certain themes, if you will. While you're doing that... I'm going to give a quick thank you to all of our $5 patrons and members. Thank you to Absinthe Alice, Amethyst, Amet, Ann Barry, Bubbly Panda, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Frankie Brockway, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt Flat Out, Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Kathy Fanning, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, The New Ongoing 24, Tiger Princess, Tish Love, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for the amazing continued support. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you to everyone who stops by, listens to the videos, leaves a like, leaves a comment, shares it with someone. I appreciate you all as well, just the same. I hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. And as always, take care of yourselves. Good night, everyone.